This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. Hi, this is Steve. We wanted to let you know that we'll be discussing intimate partner violence on this episode. The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. The sugars are here, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Steve Allman. I'm Cheryl Strayed. This is Dear Sugars. Hi, Cheryl. So here we are, the opening of a new season of Dear Sugars. Yes. You know, one of the, my favorite things about the break, I must say, we yes. all love we all love to be missed. When you listeners email us and say, "Wait a minute, there's why isn't there a new episode out this week?" Yes. And it's because we need time to regroup and think about the whole next batch of episodes. That's what we've done over these last three weeks. We're deeply flattered and happy to be back. Yeah. And, and of course, you know uh, that my favorite thing is being able to just talk with you and gaze upon your lovely face and listen <laughs> to your wisdom. The feeling is entirely mutual, Steve. Well, thank you. And, what, and, and I understand, it is my understanding that your play is now going up in Portland where we would be recording this entire season. Is that true? Yes. Tiny Beautiful Things has come to Portland? It's really exciting. I mean, I think about this, of course, Sugar began with us, you know, way mm-hmm. back in our rumpus days, you began writing the Dear Sugar column, and I wrote you letters mm-hmm. praising you for your brilliance, and um, it's an admiration that's only deepened over time. Aww. And a, a few months later, you sent me an email saying, hey, I write that column, yeah. and would you like to take it over? And I did, and then it became a whole thing. I, I, I really um, did not expect the Dear Sugar column to become such a big part of my life and, and such an important part of my writing. Mm-hmm. And and here we are now, as you said, it's now been adapted for the stage. And I'm so excited to tell you that it's going to be at Portland Center Stage this time next year in February and March of 2019. And, you know, speaking of books, you have a really powerful, brilliant new book 
coming out next month. April Is it April 1st that it's coming out? April 1st, people say, oh, I see. It's just another almond gag. No, it actually <laughs> is on April 1st. Now, this yeah. is a book called Bad Stories. What's the subtitle? Well, the subtitle was pretentiously titled by me, Toward a Unified Theory of How It All Came Apart. And then my publishers wisely intervened and said, gee, that sounds awfully vague and academic. And this book <laughs> is really a literary investigation of what the hell just happened to this country. And so that's what the subtitle is, What the Hell Just Happened to This Country. Right. And I was, uh, it was one of those experiences that I started reading it right before bed. And then I couldn't go to sleep because I couldn't put the book down. I admire so many things about you, but you really genuinely have the gift of clear thinking and this wonderfully accessible way of expressing, I think, really complicated ideas, whether they be about our emotional lives or our psychological struggles or the politics of the day. Well, the the idea, you know, I guess you could call the book a literary investigation of our political moment, but it's really an effort to say, stop focusing on the bad outcome. Let's talk about the bad stories that gave rise to that bad outcome. And in, in a sense, it's informed every episode we do, because we're trying to get beneath the stories that are told in these letters to sometimes identify what's the bad story Mm -hmm. that is leading to these bad outcomes, this struggle, this unhappiness that we see in the letters. So today we're going to dig into a discussion that has been very much at the forefront of our many of our minds because it's been in the headlines and there is so much to be said about that. And that is sexual consent. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to really uh, discuss letters over a series of episodes here from listeners who are saying, this happened and I'm haunted by it. I'm confused by it. I'm angry about it. Yeah, um, We're going to dig into the gray. Um, What happens when it isn't so clear, when you're uncertain if something was abuse or consensual or non-consensual? So, Steve, we thought today we'd go straight to our guest. Uh, We're going to have Jacqueline Friedman on the show. She's an educator, activist, and writer. Her books include Yes Means Yes, Visions of Female Sexual Power and a World Without Rape. And her latest is Unscrewed, Women, Sex, Power, and How to Stop Letting the System Screw Us All. We're going to give her a call today and have her discuss a couple letters with us. Let's do it. We're going to discuss two letters with you. You've received both of them, I think. I have. I love them. Okay, good. (laughs) So, Jacqueline, we are discussing consent today, and we thought you would be the perfect guest because you've done so much thinking and, and writing about this. And I think we want to just launch in uh, and, and get started on our first letter. Steve, will you read it? I will. Dear Sugars, I found myself slowly becoming more and more angered by the Me Too movement. I'm not angered by the accusations and allegations, rather by how my male friends and counterparts are reacting to this movement. I'm overjoyed to see that women are finding the strength and courage to speak out against their attackers, but my male counterparts just do not get it. Many emotions on this matter were sparked by the Harvey Weinstein allegations. For me, it was a boy at a college homecoming party. We'd both been drinking, obvious red flag. He was also a complete stranger that I had just met at this party, second red flag. We'd been making out, and things were starting to get heated. He begged me to let him come back to my house and said we didn't have to do anything. 
once he saw the look of apprehension on my face. So we went back to my house and more making out ensued. He did not ask if we could have sex until he was already inside of me. Because he was a complete stranger and I had no idea what he was capable of, I went with it, out of fear. What if I had said no and he continued having sex with me despite this? It was something that I did not want to face or think about, so I went with it. I shook it off and labeled it as a one-night stand, but it continued to haunt me because of the most important detail out of all of this. I never gave consent, the all-important C-word. I was telling my now ex-boyfriend about this experience, and I said I believed it to be sexual assault. I was sobbing as I was recounting this story to him because he was the first and only person that I'd told about it. One of his first responses was, Well, you never told me no. I said, Yes, there is a whole lot of gray area in situations such as these, but I would not be afraid to tell you no. The fact that he lightly questioned my situation was devastating and disheartening. Under his logic, does that mean that if I don't say no outright, then my body is any man's for the taking? It is not a mood killer to ask for consent, men. Please do it for the sake of all of us. My ex-boyfriend is not the only man in my life who has such skewed visions on the matter. A lot of my male friends and family members are all blissfully unaware of their own privilege as men in this world. When discussing these many headlines of sexual allegations, many of them have the same mantra. Oh, they always take the woman's side, they say. She's just looking for attention, others say. If it were legitimate, why didn't they come out when it first happened? My blood boils when listening to their insensitive and wholly incorrect comments. Are they really that unaware of their own privilege? These friends and family really do not understand that we still live within a patriarchal society, that many of these women from these headlines may have been threatened by these powerful men that harassed or assaulted them. The headlines never tell the full story. My question for you is how do I make the men in my life understand where women everywhere are coming from? How do I make them more aware of their misguided opinions on what consent is? This is an answer I believe every man needs to hear. Signed, Tired of Being Silent. So, Jacqueline, what did you think when you read this letter? What answers would you offer tired of being silent? Wow. Well, the first thing I felt when I read her letter was I felt her anger uh, and I felt her strength. Uh, you know, absolutely, she was sexually assaulted. And the fact that she has come to a place where she feels very clear about that, no matter what the men in her life are saying to her, I think is a sign of her power and, and her healing. Um, I just want to say to her, I believe you. And then if you tell someone about such a horrible experience and they make it about them, you know, nobody deserves to be treated like that. Right. Well, Jacqueline, I just want to stop you there. I want to hear, we have so much to unpack with this letter. But I think that, you know, part of uh, this this disconnect um, that the letter writer describes between her and her ex-boyfriend, you said very definitely she was sexually assaulted. Um, somebody else might read her account and say that wasn't sexual assault. So I'm curious about, you know, how do you define consent and why do you say that this particular experience she had, why do you characterize it um, as sexual assault as the letter writer does? Because consent as 
tired of being silent, rightly points out, is not just the absence of no. It's the presence of an active yes, right? Women don't exist in an, an always state of consent until we object. We are sovereigns over our own bodies. And so if you want to interact with us sexually, if you want to interact with our bodies, you have to get our consent actively. You don't just have to proceed until you hear our objections. Because that assumes that women are here for consumption until we tell you otherwise. And it's just not true. We are full sovereign human beings. So my definition of consent is affirmative consent, where each one of us, regardless of our gender, is responsible to make sure that our sexual partners not only aren't saying stop, please, but are actively into whatever's happening. And that's just a human responsibility we have to each other. It's, it's not about gender at all, ultimately. It's about all of us, if we're decent human beings, want to only be doing things mm -hmm. intimately with people who want to be doing them. And your other question about why this is sexual assault. I mean, she had made clear to him that she was reluctant. She wasn't very into what's going on. He basically pressured her even in, into just going back to the apartment. He already overrode her desires in that case. They went back. She basically relented and let him make out with her. He did not ever attain consent. He did not find out if she was into what was happening or if she would be into having intercourse. Uh, he just seized control of her body. And that's assault. What would you say to people who would, in response to that, say, well, okay, he did pressure her to go back to the house. But then when they were making out, she could have said, okay, I want to stop here. I don't want to have intercourse. She didn't do that. Well, she didn't know she had to do that. Maybe she was, in fact, enjoying the making out. Right. You can be enjoying one sexual activity and not want to do all of them. Enjoying making out with someone does not mean you want them to put a part of them inside of you. Uh, those are two really different things. And so he needs to have consent to the next thing as well. Mm -hmm. And this is where this yes means yes comes from, right? When you're talking uh, to people about, you know, really kind of like getting down to brass tacks, like what is going to happen in this interaction? We've got two people um, who just met. They've both been drinking um, and they're making out. If this went well, what would have happened? Well, if this went well, they would never have been making out, honestly, because I really, it sounds like he pressured her over her objections into going back. But let's say they both happily went back to her place and they're making out and he wants to do something new. He could really just say it. People think this is very complicated. It's not. We just don't see it modeled a lot. So he could literally just say, let's have sex or I really want to have sex with you. Let's do it. Uh, he could say that in a sexy way. He could say it excitedly. It does not have to be a mood killer. And then he has to pay attention to how she responds to that. Is she into it? Does she seem inscrutable? If so, he has to ask, would you be into that? Uh, and, and he has to listen to the answer. Yeah. You know, one question that comes to mind as I listen to you talking, Jacqueline, is, you know, does persuasion have any place in sexual interactions. So what I mean by that is when you say, well, wait a minute, like the, the, the consent started to be violated when she was hesitant to bring him back to her house. And he said, oh, no, 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 it'll be okay. You know, and he, he persuades her to do that. Now, this is very familiar to me. I remember many, many, many times men begging me <laughs> to do this or that or the other thing. Um, and what, what do you say about the, the place of persuasion? in these interactions? I think that 
we all have to be aware of our power relative to the people we're trying to persuade. Right. right. So I think it in reality, it shouldn't be this way. Maybe it's not fair. But in reality, a man trying to persuade a woman is not the same as a woman trying to persuade a man. Right. And so I think men have an obligation to be less aggressive in their attempts to persuade. So imagine that a woman, hypothetically, really does want to be sexual with this particular man and doesn't feel like she can say so. And he says, let's go back to your place. And she says, no, some version of no. And he respects that. And she'll be disappointed, maybe, you know, like a little disappointed he didn't press harder and he might be disappointed he didn't get to have sex with her. But imagine that happening over and over again. It would actually shift the culture to a place where women felt free to say yes or no. Right. Right. It would it would create space. So I feel like that disappointment of not having sex is a better price to pay than the alternative. And it also creates space to, in fact, shift the culture that if that happens enough times in enough circumstances, women will start to be like, oh, I guess I really have to say yes if I want to say yes. And that'll create a delightful shift, I think. And you you see her boyfriend, when she tells her boyfriend about this experience, I think that he has a, a reaction that, you know, he says, well, what about us? When, we, when we've had sex, I haven't always heard a yes from you. We've just done it. Um, what do you say to that? There are a couple things there. One is that affirmative consent doesn't have to be verbal, right? So it's possible that he was correctly reading her body language, right? That she was really into it and it was apparent and so he didn't feel the need to check in. And that's a really legitimate way of making sure your partner's into it is reading their body language. If it's somebody new, someone you don't know as well, you might have to communicate more because you want to make sure you're correct about reading their body language. But in an ongoing partnership like that, a lot of the time it's nonverbal. So so that's the first thing. It's not about getting like a signed contract for each sex act. And the second thing is that it's possible that they weren't practicing really great consent and that it just so happens that nobody got hurt. One of the things uh, in Tired of Being Silent, she's obviously very frustrated um, with this conversation, um, annoyed that, as she says, men don't get it. And I would amend that to say, well, you know, some men get it. And and, and frankly, you know, some women don't get it, too. Right. You know, this mm-hmm. isn't, you can't really categorically say, you know, women understand um, and we all think the same things about these issues and men uh, think the opposite thing and they don't understand. That's 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 overgeneralizing something that's not, in fact, the case. But I am, you know, very aware um, that there are a lot of questions around this very thing that she and her, her boyfriend argued over, which is, if I have to get a yes every time, isn't that a mood killer? And what's interesting to me about that is... Um, you know, as much as I think that that's a, a kind of offensive way um, to think about consent, it's a, it's a very familiar way. Um, we all mm. were raised on really these kind of romantic ideals that were so much about the passive female partner and the aggressive male um, pursuer. And right. in fact, that's even romantic, right? If the guy pursues you, if the guy persuades you to kiss him or, you know, whatever. We, we've seen this played out in films and books and, you know, the stories we tell about um, heterosexual romance. What I guess I'm trying to say is, in in some ways, as frustrated as I sometimes am with men and as frustrated as this letter writer is with men, I also understand why her ex-boyfriend 
has these questions and confusions. I mean, you we're not in the same room, unfortunately, so you can't see that I've been nodding for the last three minutes as you've been talking. <laughs> I think you're you're spot on. And that we're in a moment of a lot of confusion about consent because the standards are changing and they're not passively changing. Myself and other people are out there trying to advocate for that change so that we'll have just a more human, caring kind of sexual culture and not one that posits men as the aggressor and women as sort of the passive object and never mind how heteronormative that whole model is, right? Right, right, right. Um, But I do have a lot of empathy for that confusion. Uh, and, And that's why we need to be having conversations like the one we're literally having right now. Uh Uh, And it's also why we need to be doing better sex ed from a much younger age, right? So that this is not the first time her now ex-boyfriend is hearing this idea. Um, So true. It's very hard if you've been raised to think this is the way to go about being a good person. This is the way to go about being a man. Uh, And then you get different information and to integrate that Especially if, and and I don't mean this specifically about the ex-boyfriend, I know nothing about him, but I think there are plenty of men who are hearing this conversation and resisting it because they think, well, if that's true, then I've hurt people. Yeah, right. Right. Absolutely. and, And it's very deeply human to just on a psychological level, resist integrating any new information that goes against deeply held beliefs, such as I'm a decent person who doesn't hurt anyone. So I I really do think that um, we're in a moment of struggle over how we conceive of sex as a culture and that it's not going to change overnight because there's a lot at stake here for everyone. Yeah. I mean, I think... uh... Part of the reason that um, particular stories are resonating, not just non-fictional accounts, right, real accounts of uh, sexual misconduct or harassment, but even uh, the story The New Yorker ran recently called Cat Person by Kristen Rupenian, um, it really sparked a lot of self-investigation and it, and it created, I think, a lot of backlash amongst men who suddenly had a direct transcription of what a woman is thinking and feeling in a particular sexual interaction. And I think men felt really troubled to realize that consent is not just, again, um, I didn't hear a no, and so that's a yes, that there's a much more complex set of thoughts and feelings and confused set of thoughts and feelings. I want to read just a little bit of that story because I think it starts to articulate everything that's happening that we're not saying out loud. Um, So it's really just from the point of view of a young woman who, um, you know, goes on a date with a guy and is interested in him and does initiate their going back to his place and is is turned on uh, by the prospect of being physical with him. But as they're in the midst of the act, uh, undressing, readying themselves, her feelings become much more complicated. Looking at him like that, so awkwardly bent, his belly thick and soft and covered with hair, Margot recoiled. But the thought of what it would take to stop what she had set in motion was overwhelming. It would require an amount of tact and gentleness that she felt was impossible to summon. It wasn't that she was scared he would try to force her to do something against her will, but that insisting that they stop now after everything she'd done to push this forward would make her seem spoiled and capricious, as if she'd ordered something at a restaurant and then, once the food arrived, had changed her mind and sent it back. 
And the story goes on to suggest, again, moment by moment in this sexual interaction, that she gains power in the interaction. She thinks, uh, this guy is thinking, I want her so badly. I want her more than I've ever wanted anyone else. I want her so bad I might die. The more she imagined this arousal, the more turned on she got. So she is aroused and into it, but intermittently. And later, uh, Rapinian writes, she felt a wave of revulsion that she thought might actually break through her sense of pinned stasis, and her revulsion turned to self-disgust and a humiliation that was a kind of perverse cousin to arousal. It's a stunning story because I think it lays bare the very complicated um, aspects of how consent, even within a woman or a man, shifts moment by moment as the circumstances around it. Uh, shift. Even those of us who are in happy, healthy marriages, Mm -hmm. the vast majority of our sexual interactions, uh, consent is liquid. It is flowing and shifting at all times. And sometimes it's even a gas. It's that diffuse. And and it's not a static thing in time. Um, It's not at all black and white. Yeah, I loved that piece. And and honestly, I've had my own cat person experience as have a lot of women I know, just in the sense of a sexual experience that I realized early on I didn't want to be having, but it had gone to this point that I felt like was of no return, but really was about not feeling like I could hurt his feelings, right? right? That yeah. his feelings and his experience was just more important than mine. And what I hear in that writing, which is just so sharp, um, is she's finding a way to get turned on by being desired. Mm-hmm. Right. At no point is she saying, I really want to be doing this. She's saying, I'm turned on by the idea that he wants me. Right. And and that's what we teach a lot of women coming up in this culture is the most important thing, which is to be desired, but not to be in touch with, let alone advocating for our own desires. Yeah. And we teach men that's what women are for, too. Yeah. It's interesting because I think sometimes men perceive that they're being asked to give up power, and they are. But I think the central thing that everybody has to do is look at their sexual interactions more carefully and all the unarticulated things they might have noticed, assumptions they made. That's the central thing I have been thinking about over these past few months is, oh my God, I have been in interactions where I assumed it was one way because I had the power to assume that. When I was a teenage kid, we had a party at my house and uh, some younger girls came by to the party and people were in the hot tub and clothes were coming off. And if I'm really honest with myself, one of these women was sitting on my lap. I had power over her socially. I was also a guy, so I had that form of power. And did she want to be on my lap? I don't know the answer to that, and I didn't even bother to ask that question. I just knew that this was happening, and it was super exciting, and everything was a little out of control, and I assumed that she felt as excited as I did because I wanted that experience. Mm -hmm. I think back on that and say, oh, my God, I have no idea how she felt about it, but I do know I had a tremendous amount of power and that I was using that power to not tune in to what her story might have been. Yeah. And and that happens all the time. That's so common. That right. is the way we train all of us to conduct sex, which negates women's humanity in that interaction. I agree with everything you said. We absolutely have to all look at ourselves and the way we're conducting ourselves sexually. But I think we also have to offer people an alternative. We need to also articulate visions of what positive things we could be moving toward. And I I think that it's 
retail, right? It's person to person. It's really about asking someone to listen to you in a way that comes from a place of caring and trying to understand. Uh, but I also think men have a significant role to play here, that the men in Tired of Being Silent's life might hear the message she's trying to give if it came from another man. Yeah. Because a lot of this is about feeling threatened or insecure. If, if I've been raised to think this is what being a man is around sex, you know, and this woman is telling me I'm doing it wrong, then she's clearly wrong because she doesn't understand. Right. But another man has a power to engage in that conversation in a way that no matter how persuasive a speaker someone is, a, a woman doesn't. Right. And, and I, so I really think that that is part of the answer is that men have to be engaging in these conversations and yeah. and really stepping up. The men who already understand this or even are working on understanding it have to be helping other men along. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Dear Sugars, I'm a woman in my 30s. I felt rage at the Harvey Weinstein accounts and wept at the Me Too's. But in some cases, like the accusations against Louis C.K., I find myself feeling strangely defensive of the men's behavior. I almost certainly would have let Louis C.K. masturbate in front of me, and I would have never thought of it as harassment, especially if he'd asked. Recently, an older and more senior coworker groped me after a long work dinner filled with many drinks. It was in front of other colleagues, although I don't think they could see what was going on. I was shocked since we'd never flirted before, not to mention the heightened awareness of such behavior because of what's going on in the news. At first, my stomach sank, but I ended up going back to his hotel room with him. I don't know why. Morbid curiosity, I guess. When we talked about it afterwards, he apologized profusely. I ended up trying to make him feel better. It was not my first time being inappropriately groped, and it was not my first time obliging such advances. On other occasions when I've been groped or harassed, I've either flirted, gone along with it, or tried to avoid hurting the man's feelings. Some of my serious relationships have started and ended this way. I even sometimes smile or say thank you to catcallers. I've always thought of myself as a feminist, but maybe I'm actually a slut. 
Am I just as big of a sleazebag as these guys are for letting these things happen, even getting turned on by them at times? Am I to blame for not holding them accountable? Signed, Feeling Defensive. This is fascinating, right, Jacqueline? I mean, I think there are two things happening that, that deserve to be teased out here. She's asking a question about, is it okay if she likes these things? And the answer is yes, absolutely. It doesn't make it okay for men to assume that every woman will like these things. And that's the issue we're talking about. Right. But I don't actually hear her liking these behaviors. When you hear her language, right. she's saying that she's letting them do things she's allowing and worrying about their feelings and, and indulging. I don't hear, again, we talked in the first letter about feeling desired versus feeling one's own desire. Right. And I don't feel anything from her that says, I really like this kind of attention. Right. What I hear is a woman who has become convinced, has learned that this is what's to be expected and it's best to go along with it. Mm -hmm. That's right. And that makes me both sad and angry that this is not about whether or not she's a feminist or a slut. And I want to say for the record that I'm both a feminist and a slut. You know, that's... Um, <laughs> so am I. Jacqueline, that's, that's exactly what I thought when I read that line. I was like, wait a minute. Yep. Since when were these things, you know, uh, you, know uh, you, you can be both. We're yeah, all, you we're can all absolutely both. be both. And I also want to be really clear and say that she's not at all responsible for the predations of these men and for their behavior. Right. Uh, they're responsible for their own behavior. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because this letter, I relate to it in, in some ways because especially when I think about my younger self, I remember when I was a, a freshman in college, I had just turned 18 when I started my freshman year. So I was very young and I'd had one lover um, in high school, but, you know, I was new to... Uh, sort of a lot of like the kind of, you know, casual sex stuff. I hadn't really done that. And I was hanging out with some boys in their dorm room. And a couple of things happened. One is that there was this book of all the freshmen, photographs of all the freshmen. And the boys told me that they had um, gotten together and looked at all the pictures of all the freshman girls and rated them on a scale of one to 10. And um, they told me I was like an eight and a half or a nine or something. And, and I was both flattered and, and worried, like, well, but why wasn't I a 10? And at one point I got mm -hmm. up um, to use the restroom or something. And, and I, when I came back, the man who had told me I was an eight and a half or nine um, said to me, you're a hard on waiting to happen. And um, oh. <laughs> I know it's so terrible. <laughs> and then, and, and, you know, the story gets darker because that, that same man about two hours later almost raped me. And of course, I never, you know, told anyone or reported him or, and I, and frankly, it was years before I really thought that he'd done something wrong, even though he'd actually been kind of physically violent with me, like actually trying to force himself on me. Um, but, and, and it goes back to the way I felt when he looked me up and down and said, you're a hard on waiting to happen. Because even though I feel repulsed now, what I felt then mm -hmm. was powerful and mm -hmm. beautiful and like, yes, like th this guy thinks I'm attractive. And so then am I to blame two hours later when he's on top of me and hurting me? He's hurting me and trying to have sex with me. And I have to beg him not to. Um, and finally he relents after much grappling. And I, I, I always felt like it was my fault. And, and, you know, I think that there's this piece of that story that emerged for me when I was reading your letter, Feeling Defensive, because 
what I keep seeing in this letter of yours is this push-pull, this, I'm kind of flattered. Oh, but but it's kind of icky too. But it's actually kind of flattering. Yeah. They want me. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating feeling defensive. The, to me, the most revealing sentence in your letter is the sentence, I don't know why. You're right, you know, at first my stomach sank, but I ended up going back to his hotel room with him. I don't know why. And I think feeling defensive, you know, when we don't look at our sexual histories and we don't look at the stories of how these events play out, the central question is why? Why did I want to? Why did I feel that it was better to avoid embarrassing them or I felt the need to comfort them? And to totally disregard whether you feel any desire for them. In a sense, what what I see in these letters, especially as we continue talking about them, in crucial moments, the letter writer disappears. Their sense of Mm. what story they're leading, what their desires are, completely disappear. And at that moment, and this really connects to what you were saying, Jacqueline, they become the object of other people's intentions. Yeah, well, and and we train women, we train girls to disappear ourselves, right? to make men's desire more important than our own. That's just about being polite and taking care of everybody else's feelings. But it's also about fear of what happens if we don't. You know, I'm, I'm actually thinking of the first letter right now. She says this really interesting thing about how she didn't say no because she was afraid he wouldn't respect it. And that outcome was the same, right? That he assaulted her. But if she had said no, and he still assaulted her, you know, it, that's that would have been worse for her is what she's saying, right? Even though the outcome would have been the same as when she didn't say anything at all. Right. And, and it's almost like not wanting to confront how little patriarchy cares for our desires and, and in fact, often punishes women for expressing our desires. You know, we as feminists can reclaim if some of us the word slut now, but it's meant as a punishment. Right? And certainly, you know, Cheryl, if you were in any way, you know, encouraging or perceived as encouraging that guy's intentions and, and he had sexually assaulted you, he had raped you, or even that he attempted to, I'm sure if you had in fact, told people that people would have said, like, well, what were you doing? Right. Right. You know, you shouldn't be so sexy. You shouldn't be so slutty, whatever those things are. So when women do embody our desires, we have learned that bad things happen. That's right. And, you know, one thing I want to say in closing with feeling defensive is, you know, your letter culminates in an impossible couple of questions to us. Am I a sleazebag like these guys? Um, for letting these things happen? Am I to blame for not holding these guys accountable? And I think that both, you know, there's not really an answer to either of those questions because they both imply so many things that none of us think are true. And part of the question you're asking is, is, is one that I think is so important right now. Like, how do I look back at my life and the things that I have learned as a sexual being, as a female in this culture? And how do I integrate the new information I have to go forward in a different way? And so, you know, I'm not going to really say, you're not to blame for not holding these men accountable. You're not a sleazebag. But I do think that you wrote to us because you know something's not quite right. You know that your response to being harassed and abused is not really what you want, and it's not really what's good for you. And so I, I hope that you'll listen to this discussion Um, really with a different set of questions. Yeah. But we wish you luck. Absolutely. We sure do. Well, 
Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining us. You you were really helpful and enlightening uh, to us in this discussion of these letters. Such a pleasure. Bye, Jacqueline. Bye. Thanks so much. We're going to continue this exploration next week as we go more deeply into the issues and the gray areas around sexual consent. We'll answer another letter from a listener, and we hope that you'll tune in to hear us next week. Dear Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR. Our producer is Alexandra Lee Young. Our editor and managing producer is Larissa Anderson. Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin. And our editorial director is Samantha Hennig. We recorded this show at Talkback Sound and Visual in Portland, Oregon, with our engineer, Josh Millman. Our mix engineer is Brad Fisher. Our theme music is by Wonderly, with vocals by Liz Weiss. Please find us at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. You can send us your letters at dearsugars at nytimes.com. That's dearsugars, plural, at nytimes.com. Or leave us a voicemail on our hotline at 929 929- 399-8477. And please check out our column, The Sweet Spot, at nytimes.com slash the sweet spot. <laughs>